Hello, my name is Ratyu Lung, and welcome to the Contemplative Tribal Podcast. In this episode, I talk with Nuom, who is a researcher at the University of Edinburgh and who is studying Zomi Christianity in Chin State, Burma. We talk about what Zomi identity means for her and what it might mean today in today's world, especially in light of contemporary realities such as migration and diaspora communities. And of course, we had a short detour into current trends in Southeast Asian studies and tribal studies of Northeast India. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Hi, Noam. Thanks for being a part of this podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. So we had some discussion over the past few days for this podcast, right? And we were wondering what topic, what kind of issues we would talk about. And I think we both kind of gravitated towards the topic and the question of identity. So let's open that conversation up and you can begin by setting the scene. Can you talk to us about your background and your story? Yeah, so I am Burmese. I was born in Myanmar, um, but I actually come from an ethnic minority, um, officially called the Chin people, but we call ourselves Zomi, although there's a lot of debate about what the correct nomenclature is. Um, but I was born in Zampi village, which is in Chin state, which is in Northwest Myanmar, um, also formerly known as Burma. And I lived there until I was about five. Then I moved to the UK um, and I've been here for over 20 years now. So the vast majority of my life, I'm currently doing a PhD at the University of Edinburgh. And my PhD looks at the faith and the experiences of Zomi women in Chin state. So I'm looking at the ways in which life in this context marked by poverty deprivation and inequality has shaped their experiences of God and their relationship with the divine. We would definitely love to talk about your research questions and your research findings, but maybe we can keep that for future episodes. But for this episode, I would like to focus in on identity. So here's how my experience have been. The question of identity and belonging became especially important and came to the forefront for me when I found myself away from home. And for me, that was uh, Seoul, but it could be anywhere else, I think. And that was a time when I found myself thinking long and hard about who I am, where do I belong, uh, and really grappling with these kind of questions. Uh, what about for you? Has Was there a point when you started asking these questions, when you started thinking about these mm-hmm. issues, and how have you managed these questions in your own experience, in your own life? Yeah, so pretty much the same as you. I think I've... I've kind of always struggled with questions of identity because obviously I was born in Myanmar, but I live in the UK. And so to you know, a great extent, I'm, I'm pretty westernized. But then at the same time, I also look physically different from the vast majority of people in Britain and certainly in Scotland. So I feel like I've always kind of been in between two worlds and never quite happy in either. And I think it's only in recent years that I've kind of seriously thought through these issues and what they mean. So my MTH dissertation, which I also did at Edinburgh, was looking at the experience of migration and how theologians and how my interviewees have negotiated and coped with this transition from Myanmar to Britain. And I was kind of looking at that academically, but that was very greatly influenced by my own personal questions about how to deal with uh, migration, how to deal with the trauma of assimilating into a culture in which you kind of know nothing about and how to kind of feel at home with the fact that you might never actually feel at home anywhere. So I think, yeah, I've always kind of struggled with these questions of identity and trying to work out who I am and and whether or not I can be comfortable with this kind of hybrid identity that I seem mm-hmm. to have, have acquired for myself. 
And um, in terms of dealing with these questions, I think, yeah, that's something I'm still dealing with to this day. And I, you know, I wish I could say I had the answer or the roadmap to finding peace or contentment in this liminal space that you, that I occupy, but unfortunately I don't. And actually for a long time, that was something I struggled with and it really kind of actually led to some difficulties with my mental health. So something that I've been finding helpful is connecting with and hearing from others who have also struggled with these issues in a similar way. I found that kind of really healing. So we both share a supervisor in, do we share Alex? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so we both share a supervisor um, and he is Chinese American. And I remember one of the first times he invited his students around for dinner at his house. And I got in and I immediately took off my shoes and I spent the whole evening sitting on the floor, feeling very comfortable, playing with his children, eating, sharing a meal. And I remember leaving that night feeling restored almost and whole. And I texted him afterwards being like, thank you so much for inviting me into your home. I felt this is the first time in a long time, in, um, or in certainly the first time since I moved to Scotland that I felt at home because I was among a culture or among customs that I was so familiar with. And I hadn't realized quite how alienated I had felt mm. until I was into a context where I felt much more welcome. So definitely connecting with other people who, um, other migrants, other people who kind of straddle these two worlds. And I think secondly, also academically it's helped me because obviously I'm a, I'm a PhD student, I'm a scholar and I'm trying to make my way into academia. I think theoretically it's also been very helpful for me to look at the theories and to look at people who have kind of thought about this on a more cerebral level. I think, um, so I found a lot of strength from looking at say, for example, Asian American feminist theologians, because a lot of their works look at this idea of hybrid identities, um, because they're kind of straddling the world of them um, growing up in, in the U S and North America, but then also coming from an Asian heritage. Mm -hmm. So I found that really helpful in terms of, um, dealing with this on a more kind of academic and cerebral level. I see that you, you are very passionate about your study because you keep steering towards the theological academic stuff but what we'll, can i say to you i'm very smart so <laughs> you can see that but we'll keep the discussion for another time okay so um as you were talking i just realized that many of these academic interests even for me as well mm. they are drawn from our biographical experiences right yeah but we we always have uh, our interest our experiences tied to the stuff that we study and we end up uh, mm -hmm. finding interest so that's certainly been true for me too but for the, for the Nagas, you know, coming back to the question of identity, for the Nagas, a lot of scholars have pointed out that um, the Naga identity is in some way or the other tied to the land, the space, as some have called it. And identity is tied to where the physical land is mm -hmm. and perhaps the ancestral land, to be more specific, or at least in a broad sense, your village. So our most basic level of identification comes down to, oh, I'm from that village. Mm -hmm. So do you find similar notions or this kind of instincts regarding identity from your side of the border um, in Burma among your people? Yeah, definitely. I think among the Zomi, land and space is very important. I think, um, uh, I can't remember the exact saying off the top of my head, but something, there's a saying in our culture about how having uh, a field to till basically to cultivate and having your own house to build and mm -hmm. having that land to build your house upon is is something that's so intrinsic to the Zomi mm -hmm. identity. Um, and I think that's something that I've never really appreciated. But thinking about back to like, you know, conversations with my family and my extended family and, and their kind of home and their villages, I think 
that kind of re really resonates and comes through this identity, um, this idea of identity being linked to land and space. And something else that's also interesting, just as a little kind of <clears throat> related fact, is that um, the Chin people, the Zomi people, were actually one of the three ethnic minorities to sign the Panglong Agreement in 1947, which is where the Shan, the Kachin, and the Chin ethnic groups in Myanmar decided to join the newly formed Union of Burma mm. post-independence. And what's interesting is that they, so this kind of, there's this myth of Panglong that like they joined because they were so enamored with this idea of a democratic mm -hmm. uh, state. But actually, if you look at the reality, they joined under the conditions of full internal autonomy mm -hmm. for the hill areas, which is, um, the, you know, they, the, those, a lot of those ethnic minorities in Burma occupy the hilly areas. Um, so they actually kind of joined with the idea of like, they wanted to maintain this right of secession mm -hmm. for, from mainland Burma at any time. And I think that's kind of relevant for our discussion as it shows that like for the Zomi people, land and identity have been in, always intrinsically intertwined mm -hmm. and has over recent years become more and more politicized. And I think maybe at the start of like Burma's uh, birth as a modern nation, it, it this idea of like identity and freedom and autonomy was very much tied to the land. Um, and I think to some extent it still is. I'm not quite sure how much it is still prevalent in the kind of in the forefront of people of Zomi people in Burma today but you know it's an interesting kind of bit of our history that actually there was always this kind of interest in the ability or the kind of freedom to succeed if required interesting so what, what do you think happens when you leave your land I know you're not representing <laughs> Zomi people but what, what? Um, I don't know I think I think there's always going to be like Obviously, I can't speak for all so many people, um, but I'm just thinking back to conversations with family and stuff. I think there's always going to be a part of you that longs for the land that mm -hmm. gave birth to you. I think, I mean, my dad would always say that, like, you know, he enjoys living in the UK, but at heart, he's always like, yeah. he's always just a boy from Zambi. Like, he's a little village boy or a little country boy, which mm -hmm. I find absolutely adorable. But, mm -hmm. and that kind of shows a mentality that, like, you know, wherever. Um, you may be in the world and there's, you know, there's great groups of Zomi diaspora in the US and right. Australia and Malaysia. I feel like there's a certain sense that wherever you may be in the world, there is still, still this kind of almost longing for home. Mm -hmm. But I say all that with the, um, with the preface that this is probably kind of the first generation of migrants. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure whether or not second generation of my, of Zomi migrants might feel the same way. Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily sure that I feel the same connection to Myanmar, but mm -hmm. I mean, that's something we can talk about later. Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely it's 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 a new challenge, uh, if we may put it that way. Uh, something that our ancestors probably never have to, had to deal with. Yeah. Well, not to say that they, they had been living there forever. I think they also came from somewhere. If you trace the yeah. stories, there's always stories of migration. So migration is not a new phenomenon for them. But with the, the, with the rise of... Uh, the diaspora communities it's definitely something to think about i think for zomi as well as for nagas well, yeah definitely yeah. and like the migration that we're experiencing in this in 21st century is so different from the migration yeah, that our ancestors yeah. have experienced and like yeah. you know obviously now we have technology right. and media that yeah. kind of allows us to form what benedict anderson calls an emergent imagined communities mm. but you know mm. um which just adds a whole different level to to this kind of to these questions and issues of identity and migration mm -hmm. so you're zomi you grew up in the uk uh, i'm sure once in a while you get a chance to visit your folks in burma mm -hmm. so how has that experience been for you but besides these 
obvious infrastructural issues and differences. Uh, you as a Zomi, growing up in, who grew up in the West, what are some things that uh, culturally or, or socially surprise you the most? And if you can talk about some of the positive things as well as if you're comfortable talking about the negative and the challenging, challenging things as well. Yeah, so something that I was really not expecting when I went back last year was how moving it would be to be back among my own people. So what happened was I was attending a church service on Sunday and I was invited to a front because I was a visitor. And perhaps it's the same practice for you guys yeah. over in Northeast India, but um, all visitors and guests to the church are invited to come up to the stage and introduce themselves and say a few words about who they are, et cetera, et cetera. So I got up to the front and I started to say hello and introduce myself. And I looked back onto the congregation and just started crying because what I saw was so many faces which looked like mine and it had been so long since I had been surrounded by people who shared similar facial features as mine, who had the same black hair, the same eyes, the same skin tone as me and all of that, that I was just so overwhelmed that I just couldn't stop crying. So I'm there at the front just being like, you're all brown like me. And I, I bet the congregation was probably a little bit um, scared. But yeah, like in all seriousness, it was it was really impactful for me because I'd realized, just like I was saying in my anecdote yeah. earlier, like I hadn't realized, sorry, just how alienated and uttered I felt in the UK until I was among people who looked uh -huh. like me. And I was just so surprised because I hadn't really expected to be that moved by being back among my community. Well, thanks for telling that story. I really appreciate that. I completely agree with you that finding solidarity and identifying with people who look like you, who are like you, brings a great deal of joy and uh, strength to you, to us, you know, especially if we have lived as a minority our whole life. Um, speaking of finding solidarity, I want to turn this conversation into a similar but slightly uh, different trajectory. Uh, and it has to do with the inter-ethnic, inter, um, international even, uh, solidarity among uh, minority groups, uh, in especially in Southeast Asia. My first encounters with this was in Baguio, in northern Philippines. I came to know, I came to learn that there are similar people, ethnic minorities in Baguio, who are very similar to the Nagas, uh, in terms of their tradition, their attires, their uh, culture, their you know the, the motifs that they use in their uh, in their designs. And ever since uh, I've come to learn that there are different minority groups all across the South, Southeast Asian belt, uh, in Burma, in Thailand, in China, in Laos, you know, in Vietnam. Looking at the similarities and the historical experiences of these ethnic minorities, most of them living in the hill people, some scholars have suggested that we use the umbrella term, the concept of Zomia people to categorize these groups of uh, ethnic minorities in upland, uh, upland Asia. What do you think about this concept? Do you think it's a helpful way to understand uh, and categorize the, this uh, group of minorities? Do you think we can envision a future when even uh, Nagas and Zomi and all other ethnic minorities can even self-identify under the Zomia term, the Zomia concept? That's a really interesting question. And I think, to be entirely honest with you, that's something I'm still trying to work out for myself. Okay. I suppose the question for me is, what is the purpose of having a pan-tribal identity? What do we want to achieve? If we want certain political decisions or the guarantee of our rights as Indigenous peoples, then yes, I do think there's definitely something to be said for the strength that comes from having a collective shared identity. 
for example, things like Canada's Indigenous Rights Framework for First Nation peoples and other similar rights-based legislations and declarations that recognize the unique context and cultures of Indigenous peoples can be very, pow- can be very powerful tools indeed. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, they're not without their flaws, and many scholars have rightly critiqued the ways in which these declarations hinder as well as help. But nonetheless, these declarations still give Indigenous peoples something to point to when they face oppression from the state. They can say, look, you have violated our rights as outlined in this widely recognised and ratified document. Now, if the aim of a collective Zomia identity is the preservation and flourishing of our individual customs and practices and values, then I do think we have to be a little bit, we have to be a little more cautious. Because although we do share a lot of similarities and commonalities, there are also significant differences as well, socioeconomic differences, linguistic, cultural and historical. For example, we've talked about the remarkable similarities there are between the Naga people and the Zomi people. But at the same time, our peoples have experienced very different historical trajectories. Undoubtedly, the fact that the Naga are a scheduled tribe in India has had a huge effect on your people's self-identity. And perhaps you can say more about this yourself. But in a slight contrast, the Chin or the Zomi people in Myanmar are counted as one of the major ethnic groups in Myanmar. And we have our own state, which is itself significant, which is in itself significant, as there are many ethnic minorities who are stateless. And as I mentioned earlier, we have the quote marks honour of being one of the signatories of the Panama Agreement, Mm -hmm. which is actually a double edged sword at times. So I think if we're advocating for Zomia or a pan-tribal identity that crosses borders, we do need to be a little careful that we don't accidentally push this image of all hill tribes across Southeast Asia as being the same, with shared goals and shared histories, if the goal is to maintain and preserve our cultures. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm hesitant to blindly and uncritically advocate for Zomia or a pan-tribal identity, mm-hmm. as much as I take joy and pleasure in finding our commonalities. Because I do think we need to be mindful and careful of the differences right. that are between us that have had a huge significance on, on ourselves and on our people. Yeah. So basically, I think I find the whole kind of idea of a pan-tribal identity very fascinating, and I'm definitely interested, but not uncritical. Those are some great thoughts. Thanks for the thoughtful response to that question. So coming back to your personal thoughts, I guess, for this last round of questions. Let's say you're in Burma which you were a few months back. Uh, What is one thing that you wish Zomi people, uh, tribal indigenous people would get that you wish you could just hammer into their mind? Um, So obviously the the time management thing was Mm -hmm. was something that I struggled with, although perhaps in my case, because I was the outsider coming in, it's something that I need to change in myself. But I think something that I kind of was surprised by um, was how much gossiping there was. So, um, I mean, here in the UK, you could be quite anonymous and, and, and happily anonymous. And obviously there's still gossip, but you can quite easily avoid that. Whereas when I was in Burma, I was kind of really struck by the fact that there were so many people who were really interested in the minute details of my life mm-hmm. and my movements and what I was up to, et cetera, et cetera. So I think something about the kind of close-knit nature of that community and the fact that everyone knew each other yeah. kind of really amped up the levels of of how much people felt entitled to know about the details of your life. So there was a part of me that was kind of like, oh, maybe just back off because I don't feel comfortable sharing this about my life with you. But, you know, there's, it's what people expect and they would share the same about themselves. So it, that was a, a little tough to navigate, right. I think. Okay, so what about the reverse? What is one thing that you, as a Zomi, as a, a tribal person, 
what is one thing that you wish people in the West would get that you wish you can hammer into the heads? Yeah, I think I was quite struck by the individualism that can be present in the West. I think family values and, and like I mentioned before, the close-knit nature of the communities in, in Burma is a definite strength. And I would very much like to see that in the West here. I mm. think, for example, it's always been ingrained in me that I... Um, that I have to look after my parents when they get older. And I want to, I want yeah. to do that. It's a non-negotiable right. for me that I want to um, take care of them as they get older. And that could look like a different, like it can take on many forms, whether it's supporting them financially by living in a different city or country from them or taking them physically into my own home and looking after them as they get older. So that's something that I would never really, I don't, I don't feel comfortable basically with the, with, with, thinking that I'm my right. own family unit right. and my parents are a separate family unit. And, you know, when they get older, they can retire, they've got their savings, they've got their pensions yeah. and that's fine. Like I'm not comfortable with that. I want to, I like the, the close knit nature of the, of the community and the kind of values that we place on looking after your elders and those who are more vulnerable to them than you and taking them in as your family. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Noam, for coming and talking on this episode on this topic. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. That's it for today for this episode. But as always, I'd love to hear what you think, what you have to say about all of this. You can drop in your comments on Instagram or at the WordPress site. And if you learned something interesting, something new from this episode today, make sure you share it with your friends and your family. Until the next episode, take care, God bless you, and be a blessing.